Hello and welcome again to uh, episode 10 of the podcast. Uh, we're doing it live at Red's True Barbecue, like we did a few weeks ago with Bez. Were any of you in for the Bez one the other week? Yeah. Class one, it? <laughs> I think his opening line was something about drugs is the best thing ever. And then he told us about smuggling a load of uh, gear into the Big Brother house. Remember that? <laughs> and I'm thinking, that'll definitely get edited out. Not that I'm going to edit it, I'm leaving it in, but, but they left it in, didn't they? It's out there in the world now. We can't pull it back. You can't say, uh, can you bring us your uh, 80,000 podcasts back? We want to just do a little edit. Um, so thanks again to uh, the Reds people for having us in to do this. Uh, they are the guys that sponsor the uh, podcast, so without them, we wouldn't be doing it. Well, we would be doing it, but we wouldn't be enjoying it as much. And the Distorted Productions guys in as well. Thanks to you guys uh, for doing the, uh, all the technical stuff. I just talk bollocks, me. They make it sound good over there. Story time with Boone with Red's True Barbecue. So tonight, my very special guest doesn't need a lot of introduction. I'll give him a brief introduction. Somebody that I've known for about 30-odd years. Uh, and he is one of the, to me, one of the most iconic broadcasters ever in Britain and beyond. But uh, he's, just, uh, he's an household name. And he is Mr. Terry Christian. Hello, Terry. That, that, made me, that made me sound great, didn't it? Yeah, there's a bit more here that I've left out. Terry, you the bit I've left off. Uh, yeah, I said I consider Terry to be like one of the most passionate, intellectual, and outspoken broadcasters. And all the things that make him a great broadcaster, as you'll hear tonight, sometimes gets him in trouble. And it often leaves him unemployed. But it's true. Unemployable. Unemployable. Can you turn Terry's mic up a bit, please? He's, uh, yeah, he's had some ups and downs. We're going to talk about as many as we can. Um, but we're going to start, I mean, basically, Terry's from this city of an Irish background. Quite a typical childhood you had, on it, for p- people of your generation from those Irish roots. What, what you mean, like, Angela's ashes? <laughs> Outside toilets. No, I, I, well, yeah, I mean, I grew up in a, an area called uh, Brooks Bar in Old Trafford. And uh, it, it was, it was kind of weird because at Old Trafford back in those days, you know, 60s and 70s, you're either Irish descent or Jamaican. So, you know, we all grew up uh, liking reggae, but being guilty <laughs> about everything. And, you know, I mean, I mean, I'm so neurotic, ask me about anything and I'm bound to feel guilty about something. But, but, but that was it. And, but what was great about that area was you were so close to the city centre. And also, you, it, it was kind of a microcosm of Manchester in a way, because, you know, Manchester city centre was less than a half a mile away. And the, the area, you know, everyone from every different background where we lived, the, the, the biggest minority were the English. You know, they, they were hard, there was hardly anyone. So even when you, you got the kind of race things that, that you would, you know, with black kids and everything, you could never say to them, get back to where you came from, or they'd say the same to you. Yeah. And, and so, it, but, it, but it created an interesting dynamic. And as a kid, you know, kids are very honest. They, it, it kind of gave you a, a sense of fairness and... You know, not to believe everything. I can remember feeling cringy age seven when the black and white minstrel show had come on the telly. Because I thought, well, my mates don't look like that. <laughs> so you did well at school. You went on to Poly, didn't you? Did it, was it Manchester or Thames? No, no I, I went to Thames, Thames Poly in London. Yeah, okay. And you eventually got kicked out, did you? Well, no, I mean, all it was was when I went to Polytechnic, uh, I, I went to St. Bede's in the olden days, which was a bit, bit like Borstal with incense. And, uh, I mean, it's gone private now. So now I even get people on Twitter going, oh, you went to private school and thought, fucking hell. Back in the day, 11-plus job, covered in dust. The only education we got was, like, a bit of Latin, 
and learning how to swerve the paedophile priest. <laughs> and doing all of that while wearing flare trousers and uh, platform shoes. Quite an ask. Um, so you left Polly. Now, this is one of my favourite bits of your story. You're 20-year-old, maybe 21, unemployed, very angry, don't like the system. And you get roped into a TV show that Granada Television Power has put together by the World in Action people. Well, well no, it, it was actually uh, made at Granada. It was networks. It went out on ITV. What it was was, uh, back in 1981, the World in Action team picked Manchester rather than Toxter, you know, Liverpool or Bristol because it, Manchester was a place most affected by uh, Thatcher's economic policies at, at the time, which was she just destroyed all our manufacturing industry. <laughs> And uh, so they chose Manchester and they, they thought we'll make this eight-week show based on the, on the findings of the Scarman report after the riots of 1981 with kids from inner city Manchester. Unemployed kids. Unemployed yeah, kids. Yeah, unemployed kids. Now, I only got it because uh, they asked a load of kids from uh, St Anthony's uh, Youth Club in Trafford Park. And my mum worked on the school dinners with a, with, a, with a woman called Mrs Flanagan who lived around the corner from us and her oldest son used to run the youth group there and my mum was always moaning to her about me being in bed till two o'clock every day and being unemployed so, when, so she told him and he, he said to me did, did I want to do this TV show and I, I remember a mate of mine had just been laid off from Manchester Liners and so we decided that we'd go together to, the, to this interview at Granada and we went, we went down spoke to the producer and she gave us a tenner each for like a 30p bus ride so we thought well that'll do <laughs> and uh, then we were on this show at, at a time when there were only three channels and it was on at 20 to 7 on a Sunday night so everybody saw it I mean even in the days where you know when I've, I've done national TV shows including The Word I've never been on anything that got you recognised as much as that show for eight weeks coffee break that reminds us of all the piston heads beer at the back there they're giving free beer out if you want you get at least one each so I forgot to mention that in the intro good beer as well quality beer that all, all free beer is quality beer so um so you got noticed by the BBC on this over this eight week period no, no, well it was there were eight weeks and there was one week where they just picked six of us uh, and then after that there was nothing and then suddenly I got a phone call out of the blue via Granada from a BBC Radio Derby of all places where they wanted me to front my own radio show. And I, I'd, I'd never thought of it. You know, it wasn't something that ever entered my head. You know, even working hadn't really entered my head. I've been on the dole for about six months and I must have applied for, ooh, at least three jobs. You're a grafter. I'm a lazy git. <laughs> he said today, we were talking this afternoon on the phone, I don't like knocking on doors. He said, I feel cheeky asking for work. He actually said that today. Well, well I mean, I, I've had agents, but I mean, my agent was like a double glazing salesman. And you could never trust him. The worst thing he ever did to me was... Is there any uh, double glazing salesman in the room? Hey, yeah, no, 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 no offence. He'd, he'd make a double glazing salesman. I, I remember doing uh, this show. You know, he, he, he rang me up and he went, Terry, how are you? <laughs> I thought, oh, I... He said, how would you like a week in Argentina, five-star Sheraton Hotel in Buenos Aires? He said, 6,000 quid, three days of filming, they'll fly you there and back, club class. I said, that's all right, what's it for? He said, oh, it's for this uh, programme. What's the programme? He went, oh, it's called The Fear Factor. I said, what? He said, the fear factor. I said, what's that? He said, oh, you just have to do little tasks. I said, what, a bit like I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, you know, eat the odd bug and swim around with plastic crocodiles. 
He said, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, I went. <laughs> I'm still traumatised by it now. <laughs> Back to Derby. 82 through to 88, you were... Still not known in Manchester, were you? Relatively, we didn't well, know you well, were. Well, no, I mean, I, I used to just come back here for weekends, go out with my mates and everything like that. Yeah. Um, you know, do whatever. I mean, I just had a cushy number in Derby. I loved it. And you were getting your head around how to do radio, weren't you? That was so you learned away from Manchester, which is probably an advantage, really, isn't it? Well, if, you'd, well, if you'd been doing that here, people would have been on phone, like, hey, you don't know what you're yeah, on I, about. I mean, funny enough, I did get offered... Uh, when, Mark, when Mark Radcliffe uh, used to do that kind of late night you know 10 to 1 on a friday night show yeah was, uh, that, was that about uh, 84 or something 85 it was the first the first show they'd ever been on the radio where they actually played up and coming manchester bands or new releases by manchester bands yeah and i got offered that by tony ingham because uh mark radcliffe he was always back and forward when he going going to radio one to be a producer you know yeah. mainly on live music you know made available and uh, I remember coming, coming up here for an interview, and I only did Monday to Thursday at Radio Derby. I thought, great, Friday night in Manchester, Central One, cock of a walk. So he said to me, he said, um, he said, right, he said, well, we've heard a lot of good things about you. I mean, you know, he said, um, you know, so how do you fancy coming and doing a show for us? I said, yeah, I'd love it. He said, uh, how much would you want? I said, well, how much will you give me? He said, well, it's a three-hour show, so... How much are you getting at the moment? I said, well, how much are you getting at the moment? <laughs> he went, I've got plenty. And I said, well, I haven't, but I'd like a bit more. So basically I thought I was getting about 45 quid a show at the BBC mm. in Derby. Uh, so I thought, well, the second biggest commercial station in the country, a three-hour show, you know, unsociable hours, but everybody listens to it. I thought, 60 quid. <laughs> that was the last I heard from him. <laughs> they gave it to Tony Michaelides for 20 quid a show. Oh, he got it, didn't he? We eventually got over to Manchester. Uh, was it 1988 you started at Key 103? Which yeah, is a brand new... yeah, October. October New station, wasn't it? Because Piccadilly Radio and Piccadilly launched a new station called Key, which immediately became more popular than Piccadilly. Well, well I mean, Key was the FM service, wasn't it? And Piccadilly stayed like the Magic or the, the AM. Uh, so, so that's where I started. But what was great was... When I, when I came to Piccadilly, I'd done little bits and bobs for Radio 1, but there was no chance of getting a gig on Radio 1 with, a, with a, an accent like mine at the time. I'd even done a show for, uh, for getting on for two years on Radio 4, aimed at young people, called uh, WPFM, or Wavelength Plus, right? You know, aimed at, like, fifth and sixth formers to listen to at school. And uh, I remember after my very first show... Some old woman rang up, you know, rang in and went, uh, can't you do something about that chap with the awful left-wing accent? <laughs> so, so really, and uh, when I was at Radio Derby, I actually won two Sony Radio Awards for the Best Specialist Music Show. And uh, at that time, I think I was the youngest person to ever win one and the first person to win two. So I was a bit of a blue-eyed boy when I went into uh, Key 103. So they were going to put me on the breakfast show with uh, Becky Wan, but they wanted to give me six months just on air before they did that. So they gave me the six till nine, you know, Monday to Friday and two till five Sunday afternoon slot. But, because, but they just let me play what I wanted. A hundred percent free choice. So in a lot of ways, I've been doing a similar kind of show in Derby, you know, where I, I played a mixture of stuff, you know, reggae, funk, house... You know, even, you know, a bit of old punk, you know, your sort of big classics, you know, Northern Soul, all of that stuff. And then plus, plus local bands. Well, of course, when I came up to Manchester and I was able to do that, 
there was, you know, everyone was releasing stuff anyway. And I just thought, well, why not play it? No one's going to mind. And uh, it, I, I just happened to be up here at the right time. But in many ways, for bands like you, yeah. that was, I was the best thing that ever happened to you. Absolutely. Well, it was Six a... days a week. I used to play like three Stone Roses tracks a night when they actually only had four tracks released. <laughs> it was amazing because we'd never heard of him. So it's like, even though he was from Manchester, he'd been like starting his radio career out of town in Derby, obviously. And then suddenly he's got this prime slot in the best city in the world, in, in the city where none of us realised at the time that what was about to happen was going to change music around the world for the next couple of decades. And this fucker's got the best radio gig in that city. Sat there. Well, 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 I mean, but, but the reality was, you know, back then, because the, the, the only show that would ever play any Manchester stuff on uh, Piccadilly Radio was Tony Michael Eadies. Yeah, and and he'd, he'd only play the stuff he was plugging because he was a music plugger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or he might give it that. one token play. Yeah. And that'd be it. Whereas when I was there, I could play stuff every night because I understood that that's how you make somebody. You know, yeah. you promote <laughs> stuff that was out there. You were there right at the birth of Manchester. You were like a midwife, weren't you? Well, well I, I mean, <laughs> your, your old manager, Anthony Boggiano, yeah. when, he, when he found that, you know... Al Keener wants to play your stuff. Then he's coming in with, all, with everything else he was uh, looking after at the time, like the pop guns and, uh, well, the Waltz well, songs, but I knew them anyway. I'd, I'd already been playing them on Radio Derby. In fact, I played your stuff, you know, at Radio Derby. Well, keep the yeah. circle around, you know, uh, that, that EP. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and then stuff that I had played from Manchester at Radio Derby, you know, like uh, the Stone Roses, uh, John, uh, Johnny Dangerously, Black and Blue. Oh, beautiful. Which, which nobody seemed to know in Manchester at the time. So when I got on Key, even though it had been out about a year and a half, you know, 87, I think that came out, I started hammering it, yeah. you know, like two or three times a week, because if it was, because to me, you know, Manchester really was the worst thing that happened to the Manchester scene then, because it was a much more varied scene than that. You know, you had Johnny Dangerously, you had the Ruthless Rap Assassins, you had MC Busby, you had Chapter in the Verse. There was a lot of stuff that didn't quite fit this idea of, Manchester, which was, you know, guys looking a bit 60s psychedelic and wearing ba baggy clothes. <laughs> well, well, no, but it's true, isn't it? <laughs> of course you don't. No, no, but it was true. You know, there was a lot more to it. Uh, and yeah. it, in many ways, you know, I always felt that, God rest his soul, but the late Tony Wilson was just desperate for the Haciendas to be seen to be at the centre of it, which it wasn't. <laughs> he was desperate to get the Mondays on the coattails of the Stone Roses... But in order to do that, he had to include you because you were selling as many tickets and records as they were. And then he, but then he, he tried to say, but it's all about this. So, it's ba so he, he kind of narrowed it down to being about four bands and yeah. his club, <laughs> which is quite cynical. <laughs> Good friend of yours as well, wasn't he? Anthony? Oh, yeah, yeah. We used, to, we used to argue like mad though, yeah. me and Tony, you know, about things like that. No, but he was so cynical about it. He knew what he was doing. But it used to, it really annoyed him that the Stone Roses were the ones carrying the can. I remember a big discussion we had, walking back to his jag, and then he gave me a lift after me calling all these names. <laughs> gave me a lift back to Old Trafford in his jag. And, uh, and I'm saying, oh, yeah, but I said, well, but the Roses are the ones. He said, yes, well, but the Stone Roses, I mean, Terry, you know, they really appeal to uh, over 25s having a dig at me. You know, the sort of blokes who buy you two albums. He said, where's well, the Happy Mondays? They're for the kids. I said, Tony said, the Happy Mondays, half of them are older than me. Right? <laughs> but, but it was like, uh, it was that, that kind of determination and that vision. But what I didn't find out until Tony died was 
the show I ended up doing, The Word, mm. I took the name of that show from the Manchester Evening News page. And that Evening News page was started around 1985 by Mick Middles. Yeah. And it was used just to write about up-and-coming bands in Manchester. It used to be in the Evening News on a Friday night. And then Sarah Champion took it over, and she was the first one to write about the real bands that were coming through in Manchester. Yeah. And then I took over <clears> from Sarah Champion. And I only found out after he died, off Mick Middles, that the whole idea of the word page came from Tony Wilson, back in about 1984, sitting down with the editor of the Manchester Evening News, Mike Unger, and saying, and they used to have like a pop page in the Evening News. He said, really, Mike, you know, all the great things that have happened in this city, what you really need to do is have a page just about Manchester bands. But of course, what Tony meant was a page where everyone will write about Bands on Factory. <laughs> you know, here's the latest release. So, funny enough, that's what happened. And Tony got to say, uh, yeah, Mick Middles, get him in. Because he thought, well, I've got no issues with Mick. Uh, you know, I've not really fallen out with him. So he won't mind writing about the latest uh, release by Section 28 or whatever. 25. Or 25 <laughs> Section 25 or the Stockholm Monsters or, or some obscure thing by Kevin Newick. You know, he won't care. <clears throat> He'll put it in. Yeah. So, in a weird way, that word page came from Tony. And then, of course, when I got this uh, gig on Channel 4 years later, they couldn't think of a name for the show. So, I just said, what about calling it The Word? Because uh, originally, that, that page used to appear on a Friday night, and The Word was actually started off at 6 o'clock on a Friday evening. Yeah. And I just thought I might get an extra 30 quid a week off Mike Unger, the editor <laughs> of the Evening News. And uh, so, so that was it. So it, it's strange. That, that's the irritating thing about Tony, is he penetrates everything in Manchester. There's nowhere where you can go. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think anyone who has any idea at all always gets it from someone else somewhere. Yeah. You know, so there is no kind of real original thought because it's always someone, someone's put that idea in your head or done something or influenced you in some way. But yeah, I mean, it is. It's like that. It's like, but hell, Tony, go away. Still learning as well. <laughs> Um, let's talk about the word then, because that was the part of your life that brought you right across the nation, didn't it? It wasn't just Manchester anymore, this was like right across the nation. And no, no, that, 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 that's when all my eight years of good work went down the fucking pan overnight. <laughs> that's what you're trying to say, isn't it? <laughs> I, I mean, it was just one of those weird things. I, I thought when I was offered that show, that it'd be some little show stuck on, uh, on Channel 4 at six o'clock in the evening with a few bands on, and it'd mean that I'd get a better radio gig. And they might realise that, you know, because you've got a northern accent, it doesn't mean you've parachuted in from a Coronation Street theme park and you haven't got fucking leprosy. <laughs> and, uh, but the irony was, it kind of worked the other way round. So in all the five years of me doing The Word, and you've got, you've got to bear in mind our two National Sony Radio Awards, this is very bitter and twisted, I never <laughs> even got asked to sit in so much as for two hours on a on a bank on an August bank holiday on Radio One, and <laughs> never got a single music show on radio, and yet you were doing a show that was built around music, and it was it was just it was really really weird. It was almost like I think there was a very anti Manchester feeling within the media anyway, and you, you suffered from that. Yeah, I mean you can remember it. It was like suddenly, oh no, we've decided which Manchester bands we like. Anything, anything other than that is excess. Yeah. And uh, I, I always use the old Dave Godding phrase, you know, he was the guy who invented the phrase Northern Soul. 
and how the media were always very anti-Northern Soul because it was so working class. Mm. And uh, obviously, you know, a lot of the media were sort of upper middle class kids and they like to feel like they're in charge of culture. And so they tried to scorn it out of existence. Mm. And it was a similar thing with Manchester. They tried to scorn you out of existence. And it was very interesting to observe because you're not sure if you're right. You know, when you're the only one amongst them, you think, am I the one who's crazy? Or am I right? Do they mm. really just hate the fact that anything of any cultural relevance is coming from somewhere that isn't London? And the, the truth is, that's exactly what they wanted. I mean, imagine when I would have just said it was a continuation of Manchester, the whole Britpop phenomenon. So it was made out to be a London scene. Mm. I can't think of any bands other than Elastica, who were pretty average, and menswear out of that scene who came from London. And then they always try and say, blur. And I think, well, Colchester's, what, 50, 60 miles outside of London? <laughs> That'd be like saying, oh, well, if you're from, like, Leeds. Leeds, yeah. you're from Manchester. Liverpool, you're from Manchester. Let's get back to the word. Uh, because right at the beginning... Am we I were... on my soapbox? No, it's good. <laughs> That's where I want you. I want you on that soapbox. I'm, we're loving it. Um, when the word started, we were one of the first bands that, you, that were filmed in the summer of... 1990, yeah, during the World Cup 1990 in LA. So my first day in the United States, I've been there a lot over the years, but my first ever time in the USA was in LA with the Inspirals, and I spent the day with Terry in a big open-top fancy car, getting filmed, being all rock and roll and all that. And it was filmed for the word, and I think they only used about three seconds of it, didn't that initial... And then he spent four years trying to persuade the producers that they need to put this band in Spiral Carpets like in the studio on the word, which actually happened in 94, didn't it? Well, well yeah, I mean, I mean, it was three years, because again, we, we had this whole thing as, oh, you only want them on because they're from Manchester. And uh, the irony with the Inspiral Carpets was uh, kind of, I, th I think when the second series came, that was the right time to get you on. I think, I think your album, The Beast Inside, had just come out... Um, I think they put us on just before we split up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah but, but, but this is the irony. But our music booker for series two and uh, most of series three, although she was pregnant, so missed a lot of weeks, was Joe Wiley. And Joe Wiley just would not put the Inspiral Carpets on, even though her husband <laughs> and the father of the kids was their national plugger. <laughs> Check that so, out, but but I, again, I think, you know, God bless Joe, but I think in some ways she was, uh, she was a bit sensitive towards any criticism in the music press at the time, you know, Melody Maker or NME. So she wouldn't go against the grain with what they wanted. Because often we'd have a band on who were crap, you know, who'd sold no records, but they'd had a front cover of Melody Maker. You know, I could give you examples, but I'm not going to tie you out with it. Um, you know, so, so again, you've got that other glimpse in that, into that other side of the media there, of, uh, you know, how things... There is a lot of favours done for each other. It's a bit like the, the whole thing, if you want to be in the, you know, high up in the Tory cabinet, go to Eton. You know, and there is a lot of that within the media, and there's a yeah. lot of that in London. You know, there is, there is a degree to which, culturally, they have all got their heads up each other's arses, mm. or they're overly sensitive to criticism... I mean, it, maybe it's different now, you know, uh, because, you know, you, you don't have to rely on certain papers to, to get your information. But back then, you know, if you read magazines, you know, like Q, The Enemy, Face magazine, you would actually think that what they were writing was actually true. The reality. And, and yet it wasn't. 
you know, the, the, I mean, I was really shocked when he was doing interviews with these that they were as likely, if not more likely, to make stuff up as Piers Morgan was in The Sun. Incredible. Mad, isn't it? Talk about some of the, uh, some of the highlights of that, that period when you were still at The Word. You interviewed Whitney Houston, didn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah, Which we at did. the time was probably just Whitney Houston popping in, but in hindsight, well, 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 no, no, quite monumental, it, it? Well, even at the time we, we had her on, she was, uh, she was the biggest female star in the world. She'd just taken over from Madonna, hadn't, hadn't she, that year? as the biggest selling one. I mean, the weird thing about that was uh, when Whitney came on, uh, she was given Scylla Black's dressing room, you know, at, at LWT Studios. And uh, everyone was sworn to secrecy. Don't let Scylla know. <laughs> Because nobody, nobody was allowed to use Scylla's dressing, dressing room. You know, she had the big flash one there. But yeah, Whitney Houston got to use that. But again, you know, it, it kind of passes you by very quickly when you do stuff like that. Although, yeah. you know, she was very pleasant, you know, and was good fun. What about James Brown when they, James Brown was still in jail? Did they let him out for a day so you could talk to him? Yeah, well, well uh, we, we, did, uh, we did an interview with James Brown. That was August 1990, so just before... No, maybe, maybe late July 1990, just before we went on air, about a month, six weeks, uh, seven weeks maybe, before the very first show The Word went out. And uh, James Brown was, you know, lived, lived in a place called Aitken in South Carolina. It looks like, you know, to kill a mockingbird, you know, just a courthouse, population 10,000, 50% of the population black, 50% white, you know, redneck territory, loads of Confederate... Uh, flags knocking about, rifle racks on the back of the back of the cars and everything, and uh, he was in prison there, but allowed out one day a week uh, to work with uh, kind of you know alcoholics and recovering drug addicts at this community yeah. centre. And we actually bribed his ward. It was all set up. They were bribed fifteen hundred dollars to l allow us to kidnap him for four hours that day. <laughs> And, uh, but we were doing it tied in with his own production company, with it like these, run by these really smart black lawyers from uh, Washington, D.C., who'd flown down. And uh, it was all being shot on film, <laughs> so that they got to keep the film as well, and then the film had to be developed. So it takes ages to light. And we took James Brown off to this uh, doctor's house. And I tell you what, forget junior doctors and working for the NHS. Go and be a doctor over there. It was like South Fork where there's God knows what they must charge. And um, so he was at a piano in this doctor's house and it, it was taking ages to set up the lighting. So by the time we set the lighting up, I'd managed to get about a 45-minute private gig off James Brown to myself. Playing piano as well. And then, 20 minutes into the interview, the warders came to take him back. So we, so we had to give him another $600 to go and have a walk around the block for an hour. Amazing. What about the time on the word when uh, one of L7 got a growler out? Do you remember that? <laughs> <laughs> growler out. Flashed a chuff. Uh, that was L L7, yeah. I mean, you, to be honest with you, I can't, something else kicked off that night. So whatever it was she did didn't seem that shocking. Yeah. And because we'd had loads of stuff like that on the word anyway, it was just so what? And then she was chatting to me afterwards. And all, you know, you know, as if she'd done something really outrageous, like the Sex Pistols, and I didn't give a shit. You know, I mean, I was just fucking glad it was over and having a drink. <laughs> and it, I, but, but it was one of those, you know, because it was just so kind of uncool in some ways. Yeah. Because it was, you know, I mean, what, what I did notice though, as soon as, as soon as she dropped a kex on stage, and they, and they were like, I knew that they'd be going in for the close up. <laughs> Which they did. Get the chuff shot. <laughs> you know. 
because that, that's that's what that's what they were like on that show. <laughs> Reprobates. One of your fellow presenters was um, Amanda De Cadene. Yeah, Amanda. Yeah. So she, I'll just a little story. I'll just tell you a story about Amanda De Cadene. Nearly drowned me once. That's a great way to start a story. It's true as well. So it was about, it was in the early, probably 91, 92 maybe, but it was um, a Radio 1 celebrity charity water sports occasion. Right, me- water sports with Amanda. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with that last bit we've told it. But um, I'm shitting water, me. I, I, I'm not a great swimmer. I don't like getting my hair wet, fucking scared, whatever. Anyway, so I said, yeah, because it's charity. I said, I'll do it. We'll have a life jacket. They said, yeah. And um, I went down, it's somewhere down south, and it's like this big water park. And I managed to blag my way out of all the, like, the traumatic stuff. You know, like water skiing. I thought, no, nah, it's a bit dangerous, that propeller and that fucking shredded up. So anyway, what I ended up doing was one of these, uh, they did a pirates game where we had two teams. Each team had to build a raft, and then you had to go and raid the other pirates' balloons. They had big nets full of balloons and all that. Um, so we set off and all that. I'm good at building rafts. I managed that. Anyway, we, we started battling. It fucking collapsed. And I went under the water. No life jacket for some reason. And cutbacks. But anyway, so I, I'm there underwater thinking, this isn't good. And I got tangled up in the net. I was shitting myself. Absolutely shitting myself. And I was doing one of them, like, thinking, I fucking, I've got to get out of here. So I came up and, you know that moment when you've been underwater, you just need, you're about to breathe in. You need to fucking... And as I came out of the water, Amanda Decadenay got me head and fucking pushed me back under like that. <laughs> I nearly died. She nearly fucking drowned me. I, t- I tell you what, though, she was hard as nails. I mean, the, the interesting thing was, it was like, uh, her mum was, you know, from quite a posh background, you know, proper Sloan material. <laughs> and her dad was Alan de Cabernet, you know, won Le Mans a couple of times. But he was from, like, French aristocracy. And, uh, you know, they, like, they had a big chateau in France and everything. But, because, you know, obviously, if you're going to be a sports car driver, you've got to have a certain amount of courage. You've got, you know, I mean, I'd be too wimpy, you know what I mean? I'd, I'd, I like panic going round round corners even now at more than 25 miles an hour. <laughs> but she had she had balls the size of this room. So that. for all that, she was she was quite posh and everything. She was quite earthy in that way. Yeah. And I, I remember uh, when we were doing uh, The Word live from Universal Studios in L.A. And uh, she'd just got engaged to John Taylor out of Duran Duran that week. And uh, so... She was being interviewed by Entertainment Tonight in the USA, you know, which is like the, their biggest sort of rated, you know, sort of show. A bit like the one show, only with something interesting in it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm sorry about it. Every time that show comes Get it out, on, Get it I, all out. I always feel as if I've got literally seconds to find the remote control. <laughs> but, 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 but basically, uh, she didn't want to turn up in, in a minicab to Universal Studios where we were going to do the, the word live from there with uh, Johnny Rotten and Ricky Lake. They were our guests. So she wanted to turn up in something better. So the night before, we'd gone to this uh, sort of posh do at some club. And she got chatting to Ridley Scott's son, son who'd uh, done the video for Drive, is it, by R.E.M. Okay. And his girlfriend was there. Now, she'd never met this girl before, but this is what a blagger she was, Amanda. Within 20 minutes of, first of all, sexually assaulting Ridley Scott's son, hands all over him, gushing all over him like a broken drain pipe, she then turns to this American girl, manages to get her to agree to lend her her Porsche so that she can drive to Universal Studios the next day instead of going, like, minicabs. 
And so the next day, what happens is all the Entertainment Today crew are waiting for Amanda to arrive. I'm there thinking, well, where is she? Three hours later, she turns up in a minicab. And what had happened was this Porsche she'd borrowed off Ridley Scott's girlfriend, it run out of petrol and she'd abandoned it in the fast lane of the freeway <laughs> and just hailed a taxi. Now, you think, well, yeah, that's fair enough. But she didn't bother telling Ridley Scott's girlfriend's, well, Ridley Scott's son's girlfriend until the next day. Oh, by the way, about your Porsche, it's somewhere between uh, <laughs> Santa Monica and, and, and also, she, hadn't, she didn't even have a driving licence. She hadn't passed the test over there. So she would just go anywhere and do anything, Amanda. You know, she, had, she had real balls. Oh, yeah. yeah. But crazy. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think if she'd have had any real discernible talent, She'd have been massive. <laughs> Sorry. She's done all right. Cut that bit out. Yeah, cut that bit out. She's definitely uh, not on my Christmas card list anymore. Oh, no, I liked her. I liked she her. I liked her print. until she fucking tried <laughs> drowning me. Um, let's talk about what I love about you. What, what is one of the things I love is how you, on Twitter particularly, your views on football and politics and culture in general. You wind a lot of people up, don't you? You get no, it, you get it, help it. I'm the fourth of six kids. I need the attention. <laughs> you know, I, and I, I, always, I almost do it as an experiment just to see what, what, how you can niggle someone without ever saying anything. Well, you've been doing that for 35 <laughs> years. You don't think you should knock you on the head, <laughs> no, no, I know. When, well, I, put, when I put on Twitter last week, I, I don't even saw it on Twitter last week. I said, uh, next week for the podcast, I'm going to be talking to uh, Terry Christian live at Red Street Barbecue. And people say, we're talking to that cunt for. Exactly. It's a twat. It's a twat. Mainly football fans. Well, well, no, I mean, you'll get a bit of that because that, it, it's so easy to do it. I mean, I did it on TalkSport for years and that, that was my job description on TalkSport. It was, right, Terry, you're a United fan. We want you to go on and annoy every other fan about you being a United fan. Well, it was just like being in the pub having a drink, really. So, <laughs> but it just it got to the stage where people were scared to phone in. <laughs> and then, but on Twitter, all you've got to do is go... Uh, Good win for City. <laughs> and I might mean it, and it's like, fuck off, you red bastard. How are you lot doing? And I'm thinking, well, you did win, didn't you? 4 <laughs> 0. But, but yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's the Irish in me. Do you know what I mean? I, I would walk half a mile for a good argument, especially when I've had a drink. With, because of Twitter, you don't need to do that. But I, I am trying to stop doing it now. It's a bit, it is, it's a bit like shooting oh. fish in a barrel. Is there a bit of um, Anthony H. Wilson in, in you in that respect? Because he seemed to like getting called a twat, didn't he, as well? I, I, no, no, I'm more sensitive than him. He, he, actually had, he actually had a massive amount of self-belief and confidence. He was so confident that he didn't even have an ego, if that makes any sense. Do you understand that? He was, you know, when people say, oh, Tony, you know, he's a big head and he had... A, but, but when you got to know him, you realised he... He was that kind of self-assured in a lot of ways. It took a lot, a lot to sort of bring him down that peg or two. It was almost like he had so much ego, he had no ego. Whereas I'm the other way round. You know, I do all of this, I go, oh, good win for City. You fucking bastard. I can't think, oh gosh, that's a bit nasty. <laughs> Best one I had was, uh, do you remember, I think you were DJing down there at Fab Cafe. Yeah. And I was down there with uh, Martin Merchant out of Audio Web, and some Scottish guy, you know, bald head, little glasses, looked like some psycho killer, right? And he came up to me and went, Hey, Terry, he said, Tell me this, why were you such a fucking cunt when you were doing the wood? 
And I'd had a few drinks, you know, and my sort of natural belligerence came out. I said, listen, mate, I don't know who the fuck you are, so why don't you just fuck off now? <laughs> and he went, hey, there's no need to be so offensive. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, kids, you shouldn't be laughing at that. Oh, they love it. They He's love 11. it. These are all the... the... These are words that we hear thrown around our house occasionally, aren't they, boys? We've got the Boom Boys over here, by the way. They love some of those words. Um, politics. Have you ever thought about getting into politics? Uh, you... No. I, I, have, I have all these... I mean, I did do it a few years ago when, uh, you know, there was the consultation document, you know, for the mayor of Manchester. And I remember thinking, oh, that's interesting. Let's have a look what that's about. Clicked on the URL for Manchester City Council. This is about six weeks before they were going to have the consultation. And everyone had to sort of vote yes or no. It went to a blank URL. And nobody had said anything. I mean, it was kept so far under the wire. It was like they didn't want anyone to even know about it. And they just say, oh, of course, nobody in Manchester is interested in a mayor. We'll just carry on running it. Which is fair enough. But I had my issues with the council anyway. And I, and I love, like, winding them up. But they are a bit gangstery. You know, it's like that, that place, that town hall, it's like a mixture of uh, Stalinism and aromatherapy. So, so I said, well, I'm going to stand for mayor of Manchester. Mate of mine started a Facebook site up, had about 10,000 people on it. Then, then they interviewed me. They did, uh, Granada Reports tried to send me up. The BBC did quite, did quite a straight one, actually. And, of course, the Evening News, who were sort of funded at that time, in the old days, when they were still part of the Guardian Media Group, by Manchester City Council... So when I pointed out in the evening news that the reason why I was doing it really was just to raise awareness and the fact that the, the council's URL for the consultation document went to a blank page. And I mean, come off it. You know, if you're going to look, it's not the most interesting thing in the world, is it? So if you go, oh, can't get it. And it, of course, I mentioned that. They didn't put that in the article, but by the next day it was up and running. <laughs> but I just did it, did it for that. But the idea of being mayor of Manchester, what I did love, though, was the Evening News then ran a poll and they said, who do you want as mayor of Manchester with serious options like Richard Lease and, you know, Pat Carney and all this sort of stuff? And then they put Bez, you know, uh, <laughs> Les Battersby, you know, Liam Gallagher and me. I got 65% of the vote in the poll. <laughs> but it was just done as a wind-up. I might try that one again if there's any mileage, but the trouble is it just looks like blatant self-publicity, doesn't it? I think the day will come, won't it? Your day will come. <laughs> my day will come. My day, my day is all here. One of my favourite quotes by Terry is he, he says, um, most of my good fortune arrives from being unemployed most of the time or something. No, unemployed at the right time. At the right times. You know. So it's like he's, he's sat on his arse thinking, fucking I've, I've upset some other bastard who sacked me. <laughs> what am I going to do next? And then suddenly something pops up and he lands on his feet again. Uh, recently, we'll talk about Big Brother actually. We'll do, we'll do Big Brother in a minute. Oh, too. Big Brother, you've yeah, done that one with Celebrity. Yeah, I never about, got any drugs when I went in. <laughs> talking about, he was, uh, Tony went on uh, Celebrity Big Brother a few years ago. He came, was it second? Yeah, yeah. Did really well. Good lad, good lad. <laughs> really good at hanging around for three weeks doing fuck all. <laughs> was, it, was it hard or what? Was it, was it an easy one for you? I, fa I found it so relaxing. Um, I, I, I know it sounds daft, but I think great training for Big Brother is being one of six kids in a small house. Yeah. And then we had an outside loot till I was like 12, 13. We did. It was always communal. 
Well, what do you mean? We didn't have one each. We had to, sh- we had to share with neighbours. We oh, no, no, we, we weren't that rough. In Oldham, that would have been that. We had a... Uh, we would have been so high class, that, wouldn't it? We lived in, like, we had a corner shop, tourist housing, about probably a dozen houses, and then in the backyard was, like, a block of four toilets, and each toilet was shared by probably four households. Oh, that's rough, that, no electric, it? No electricity in it. You'd be there with, like, little bits of newspaper. This is in the uh, early 60s. And, um, like, the woman from next door would be knocking on... It, is that you, Clinton? Are you going to be long? <laughs> I won't be long, Nelly. Just try to curl one out. <laughs> brutal, brutal. So you had an outside toilet, go on. Well, no, anyway, I, it was I, one of them as well, wait. It was like a, a tipper toilet, what they call it. <laughs> so, so it was like a 20-foot drop straight into was, the sewer. I was, was going to say, up until the age of 18, the only time I'd been in a room on my own was when I went for a shit. <laughs> it was like a breath of fresh air. But yeah, I mean, you know... I, Growing up with that, when you, when you got somewhere like the Big Brother house, it was easy because they weren't as sarcastic as my brothers and sisters or as cutting or nasty, and you were getting paid, you know, a, a lot of money. So really, that took all the sting out of it for me. So I found it quite enjoyable. And having a few other people being a bit mental around you, that, that was like your TV. <laughs> you know, and, and every now and then, if you, if you got a bit bored, you could throw that little niggle in <laughs> or annoy them. I mean, I mean, I used to do things like, uh, you know, because we had uh, Latoya Jackson in and Coolio and Vern, you know, they, they were like the Americans in there. And uh, they were saying, hey, what do you win if you win it? <laughs> and, I, and I went like that. I said, you get a caravan. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> What's that? I said, well, you know, like a Winnebago. Caravan. Hey, man, that's cool. <laughs> you see why, with a lot of what you're saying and a lot of what we know about you anyway, that... A couple of years ago, when you're unemployed again, <laughs> I've, never been, I've never been totally unemployed, not yet. But you came up with the idea of doing the uh, the stand up naked confessions of a recovering Catholic. No, I, I did that because uh, what happened was I got asked to do an evening with um, in Chester, you know, by John Locke. Yeah. Swat ripped me off as well. If you're listening, John, seven hundred quid you owe me. Right. <laughs> so he, he said, "What about doing an evening with?" And I said, "Well, you know, it's a bit boring." Um, but yeah, go on. So he flogged all these tickets and I decided to do the evening almost like a stand-up show because I thought, well, you, know, I, you know, I'm so useless and all my life is just full, full of great opportunities and me fucking them up. It's like a comedy series. So I thought I'd do it like that and it went well. So then I just constructed a show called Naked Confessions of a Recovering Catholic, which basically boiled down to I'm a bit of a twat, but it's God's fault. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, it's been, it's been going really well. You know, and I do, I do a Q&A session after, you know, on, a, on each show. But I always say I will answer every single question. Just don't put any of it out on social media or I'll get sued. <laughs> I'm not going to do it here. And that's, um, that, that's still ongoing, is he still doing the naked Well, well yeah, yeah, I'm still doing that one. But then I, I'm just in the, in the middle of writing a new one yeah. uh, called Rebel Without Applause. And that's going to start in August, yeah? Yeah, yeah, which is basically boils down to I'm a bit of a twat. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> I can't help it. You know you what must be good, though? Because it's the, what I see with this, this stand-up, if you want to call it that, because it's stand-up, isn't it? It must be dead liberating for somebody like you who is outspoken and controversial at times and passionate and eloquent. Annoying. And people in, in power, people that employ you a lot of time don't like that, do they? So this is, you're doing something now on stage to a, a live audience. 
And there's no, there's I, no I, off I don't com. know. I, I mean, do I, mean to, do I have to worry about off com? There's no Ed of I, know, I, know, I, never, I never did. I mean, again, that, that was a weird thing. I remember uh, some guy, you know, from one of the big BBC stations telling me, you know, I had a meeting with him about filling in, doing a filling in slot there. And he was saying, yes, but Terry, you're a bit controversial. And I said, well, you know, I've done over 30 years worth of radio and never had an Ofcom complaint upheld. <laughs> no. no, come on, you're sailing close to the wind. No, no, but, you know, but the reality was, you know, this guy was saying that I was controversial and you kind of, you know, you look at, let's say, it, it, I, I actually think, you know, there's a certain amount of uh, snobbery involved in there. You know, if, you, if you're a kind of a kid from a posh background, you're allowed to have been a drug dealer and have done time, you know, and then, then there's other people, but, but what's noticeable is, the forgiven the sins i don't think you're allowed as many opportunities when you're from a certain background or you're perceived that way mm. you know that there, there is a certain yeah i mean you can kind of see almost like that sort of thinly veiled hatred for anyone working class every time you watch benefit street or something like that you know it's like you know it is there you know it is an it is a political agenda really yeah who are your favorite broadcasters i i, I mean now i don't i don't know you know I, I, I hardly listen. I only, I only listen to Radio 4. Who were the people that inspired you? Uh, in, in the early days, it would have been, you know, Mike Shaft, funnily enough. Uh, he used to do a great show in the evening that I used to always listen to where I was doing my homework. So he'd always have, like, different specialist slots in it. Like, he used to have Dave Everson from Wigan Casino doing Northern Soul. He used to do fantastic interviews as well. I mean, you know, back in the day, you know, independent local radio, they actually used to put stuff out of substance. Yeah, I remember him doing a great, great interview with uh, Teddy Pendergrass, you know, of Harold Melbourne and the Blue Notes, backstage at the Apollo, and, you know, specials like that, and he, he'd do um, kind of specialist music slots, and he used to do this great thing where he'd get, like, six formers in, you know, four or five mates, and they'd all pick two songs each, and he'd, he'd basically take the piss out of them while letting them play their favourite songs at the time. Uh, then I used to love uh, James Stanage yeah. back in the day, you know, when he first came on radio, came on yeah. Piccadilly Radio, because he was like the, the first shock jock, one in the UK. Yeah. I mean, obviously, John Peel, uh, but that was kind of later on with John Peel. I used to love Alexis Corner on Radio 2 on a Sunday night, you know, the blues show. Yeah. And uh, again, that was, that was when you were doing your homework. And, uh, you know, he'd just play all this great stuff, you know, Sonny Boy Williamson, J.B. Lenoir, Little Walter Jacobs, you know, and, and he'd even play quite a lot of soul stuff, you know, like Elvis Redding and James Carr and people like that. Yeah. But I used to love that show. We all look, everybody gets how passionate you are about music in general, like the history of music. Do you still get a kick out listening to new music and uh, uncovering new artists? Um, I, I mean, to, to be honest with you, uncovering, it's not like a race. I mean, I almost do it as if that's my, you know, that old... Catholic thing of put something back, you know, like Tony Wilson. And I always think, well, you know, if you give someone an opportunity, then it might do them good. So that, that's, why, that's why I would still do that. But I wouldn't always trust my, my taste, you know, because I, I look for a certain thing in a new band. I mean, there, there was a great band uh, who were put on on uh, this night that I do called Madman Cabaret. They were all like uh, two 15-year-olds and two 17-year-olds from up in Berry called the Corsairs. And they were really good, but now they've split up, of course. And when you go for the really young bands, that's what tends to happen. But as you know, you know, after various incarnations, you get the right chemistry and something happens. I mean, I've always been interested in that. Yeah. In the, in the way you, you get this, you know, even if it's one songwriter, once he gets the right musicians around him, he'll it, take off a bit. Yeah. 
Uh, you know, so I, I suppose it's just having that bit of an interest in what's around the corner. I find it a bit difficult now to stay on top of things. You know, if, you, if you'd have spoke to me in 1989, 90, it wouldn't have mattered which area of music you were talking about, whether it was hip-hop, whether it was house, whether it was reggae, whether it was so-called indie, anything. You know, I could have held my own with anyone yeah. in any genre. Whereas now I'm like, bloody hell, do you know? There's one artist I want to ask you about. There's a, we do a Spotify playlist, or I put together a Spotify playlist for every episode of the podcast. And I went on today to check whether there's anything on by this guy. He's a Manchester-based lad of Irish descent called John Sue. J-U-N-T-Z-U. Oh, no, 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 he's not Irish descent. He's actually from Belfast. Right. But right. He, he went to school. He's uh, Northern Irish from Belfast. Uh, a guy called John Sue. An absolutely amazing rapper. Great lyrics. Very heavy. Almost like Marley-ish in a way. And a lot of them are all based on, on the troubles in Northern Ireland. And... Uh, he actually came over to Manchester when he, I think he was like 12 or 13, went to school in Moss Side, and his first year in Manchester was uh, the year that the IRA blew up, <laughs> blew up the Ardale Centre. So, so it was like, welcome to Manchester. But uh, w- what's interesting about Junt Sue is his dad was actually in the, uh, UBF. the UVF, you know, the, the sort of Protestant paramilitaries, you know, the real hardcore group. And uh, his dad was sentenced to 40 odd years in prison and uh, let out partly due to the, his behaving. He became a born again Christian in prison. And then also because of the Good Friday Agreement. But uh, what's amazing about Jump Sue is it's like, he's like a preacher. I mean, he is absolutely awesome. I've never seen anything like I've seen him live and he's like stunning, so you need to check him out. Well, his albums are great as well. Born in Belfast, which just came out last year. I've actually seen him performing it, you know, in Belfast. Right. I mean, he was more known here. I mean, he's very respected in that kind of whole Manchester rap fraternity. I mean, what's interesting in Manchester now is there's almost... I mean, there always was a bit of an underground in terms of black music. Even if they were selling more records, they never got the the headlines the way some white kids twanging a guitar did. And, it, and it's interesting when you look at, you know, bands who are doing well from Manchester, the young ones like Blossoms, you look at their YouTube hits, what, maybe 100,000? And then you look at someone who was originally from Cheetah Mill, Bugsy Malone, like five and a half million. And he's, he's all over Radio on Extra. But, you know, as a Manchester rapper, and not even one of the best, he'd be in there in the top four, but he's going massive viral. All the kids are listening to him at school. Have you heard Bugsy Malone? No. You will. No, it's with a Z. Bugsy's, Bugsy Malone. But, but again, you know, you've got these guys, you know, shoddy horror and people like that from Manchester. And you look at the number of YouTube hits and you think, well, why aren't they being written about in the Manchester Evening News or in any of these online magazines? You know, so it just seems, uh, seems as if we're a bit too, bit too forgiving over, like, you know, eight bad 80s student music a lot of the time rather than looking at what's happening around the corner. Yeah, yeah. What's uh, wrapping things up now? What's gives a couple of your career highlights that we might not have touched upon tonight? Career? I didn't have a, I never had a career. I just had a series of jobs. Um, radio is what I always loved. Uh, I suppose interviewing people like uh, James Brown. I remember interviewing Ian Jory and spending two hours with him and thinking it was normal. But because he was quite enjoying the conversation, I was just following him around with a U.A. tape recorder. This is back, you know in Nottingham at the Royal Concert Hall. I thought it was normal. 
Yeah, and he, he just chatted to me for ages, uh, winning my Sony Awards, uh, managing a reggae band, and they're still the only band from Derby, a band called Junior C Reaction, still the only band from Derby who've ever signed a major record deal to this day. And a reggae band too, that was like trying to organise a, a wet t-shirt competition at a Taliban disco. <laughs> you know, that was, that was hard work, that. Um, and then doing a show called It's My Life on ITV a few years ago, I enjoyed doing that. And really now, because I've landed a cushy number, being a columnist in the Sunday People, every week. <laughs> Money, rope, old, four. Make a well-known phrase out of those uh, words. Right, Terry Christian, you're a legend. Thanks for doing this with us tonight, man. Absolutely hey, brilliant. Cheers, Clint. Uh, before we go, there's a couple of other things I need to do. I need to do a, a few thank yous. Uh, thank you, obviously, to Red's True Barbecue and Distorted Productions and uh, Piston Head for the beer at the back there. Um, thank you lot in the room. And thanks to everybody that's downloading this and listening, wherever they're listening now on the various devices. Um, Feel free to leave comments on iTunes as well. That's in, in, important, that. Because the iTunes people look at it and take notice, apparently. Anyway, do it. it it's all part of my quest for world domination. Um, oh, yeah, if you're an unsigned band and you're listening to this podcast, you want to get in touch with me, at The Real Boon on Twitter. Uh, I am going to play a piece of music now from um, an act from Manchester, Misha and Kardansky. So Misha Miller is in a band called Red Sky Noise. Are you familiar with them? And, and Sean... Uh, Kardansky Mabaya used to be in Kid British they've got this uh, little thing going on uh, it's quite urban here, as you're about to hear it's a bit R&B it's beautiful it's a track called Trouble uh, they're, they're actually on Muck Records in Manchester you're not saying where there's brass there's muck it's alright where there's muck there's brass either will yeah. do nowadays where there's muck there's brass hopefully it'll come true anyway, so I'm going to leave you this uh, Trouble is the name of the track Oscar Boone, my boy here, wants to show you how quick he can do a Rubik's Cube, so he's going to stand up and do that in a minute. It's like 45 seconds or something. Um, thanks again to everybody, and uh, we'll speak to you all next week. Thanks, Terry Christian. Story time with Boone with Red's True Barbecue. Subscribe now on iTunes. Go all the way down to and take a left at the crossroads. All you might go insane. Oh, you might just step and you're walking out in the rain. You never know when trouble's gonna come your way. Cross that bridge when you come to it. Don't you prepare?